desires to be holy. Let's stand to sing this. assured no blood and and spatterings and things tonight okay so rest please Uh, tonight turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Nehemiah the last chapter 13 on page 499 and the Bibles available in the back I'm not going to read it it's it's lengthy and in order to get through it I'll leave it to you as we'll be going through it as we go along, but please do keep it open. <clears throat> we will be, um, Lord willing, concluding the series on the book of Nehemiah tonight. Um, it's been an unbelievable journey of 
seeing things happen in the city and so forth. And tonight you get to this conclusion. It's almost an anti-conclusion. Uh, and I'll say more about that as we go through. Um, but it's been interesting from my perspective to see different preaching styles as we've gone through this and looking at, at uh, you know, God's Word and what a blessing it is uh, as a congregation to have that um, privilege of seeing the diversity uh, as we look together at God's Word. So as we look at this um, last chapter uh, in the book of Nehemiah, I'm going to start by asking you to kind of go back to your childhood. And I don't know, maybe this is just me, but when we were a kid and you get in the car, it's the first thing you do. It's like you haven't been in the car five minutes, you're going on a trip. It's like, are we there yet? <laughs> you know? Those of you who are parents have probably heard that until you want to scream. Um, you know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And no, almost. Two minutes later, are we there yet? <laughs> you know? And you just this desire to be there. Um, when I was a kid, we'd go to grandparents and come up over a mountain, and, and you could see down in the valley and see the city. And so then myself and my siblings would always argue as to who saw the lights, because we'd always get up there in the evening first, because we wanted to be there. We wanted to be at Grandma and Grandpa's house and be there. And in a sense, that's what this chapter is about. Are we there yet? And you'll see we're not. In the day of Nehemiah... They weren't there yet. Nehemiah had been away and has to come back and do a lot of different things, and that's what this chapter is about, to put things back on track. And so as we go through this, you can kind of hear in the background the believers amongst the Jews kind of saying, are we there yet? We want to be there. We're in the land. We're back in the land. We have the temple built. We have Jerusalem purified again. But they're not there. And so we look through this and see what's going on. The book is not like a fairy tale. There's not a happy ending here. You know, when everybody lives happily ever after and they all were wonderful and did totally perfect things, you know, their, all their life. And that's what I love about Scripture. It's honest. <laughs> you know, there's been a lot of energy expended by Nehemiah and Ezra to bring reform, to bring rebuilding amongst God's people. But here at the end of the book, you see kind of, you don't want to see, oh, everything's wonderful and everything's working fine and functioning perfectly. But it is not. <laughs> Far from it. And Nehemiah has to take some fairly stringent actions in order to right the ship, if you will, to put things back. So there's not that kind of <clears throat> happy ending. The external opposition, which had been the threat while the walls were being rebuilt, seems to have faded. Now the threat is internal amongst the people of God. It's not from outside enemies attacking it's the people themselves. It's internal issues. Are the people going to remain faithful to the covenant promises, especially the ones that they've made in chapter 10? The central focus of this newly formed community was on the worship of Yahweh, viewed as worship in all of life. Was that going to continue to be their priority? 
so that God would be glorified through this small community? Or would the people allow things to continue to drift away from the Lord and his word? It's a question we all have to ask about ourselves, individually and as a congregation, because we're not there yet. Nehemiah 1 to, or chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, seem to imply that there's a measure of faithfulness on the part of the people, but the rest of the chapter points to the need for further and ongoing reform. And we'll get to that as we move through the chapter. <clears throat> the joy, if you will, the excitement, joy in an Old Testament sense. We wouldn't get all joyous if priests started splattering blood all over the place, but for a, a Jew, that was a good thing because that meant forgiveness of sin. That meant atonement. That meant restoration to fellowship with your God. All that joy that we saw last week in chapter 12, when these two choirs, if you will, circle Jerusalem, meet at the temple, there's sacrifices. You can just imagine that. But that's starting to fade away. It's starting to slip away. Old habits have returned. It's not merely a perfunctory attitude of going through the motions of religion, but there's an open rejection of following God and his ways that we see in this chapter. And with all of the various things mentioned needing ongoing reformed in the remainder of Nehemiah 12 or 13, we'll see a shift away from devotion to covenant faithfulness that we have seen from chapter 8 onwards, there's been this zeal amongst the people of God, a recommitment to keep covenant because of the grace of God at work in their lives. But now we see a shift away from that covenant faithfulness, a drift back into indifference. And then that indifference quickly becomes sinful practice, manifesting itself in several different ways that we'll look at through this chapter. We need to be careful in our own lives because indifference never remains indifference. The devil's never satisfied if you're just like, well, whatever. He'll push you further and you will go. So be careful and take that lesson from this chapter, if nothing else. The chapter highlights not only the importance of the Word of God and applying it to all areas of life, but also follow-through or follow-up. And we'll see that as we go through and see what Nehemiah does to make sure that the best intentions that he had and the people had don't dwindle and crash on the realities of life. The concerns and actions expressed in Nehemiah 13 are more on the level of national rather than individual godliness, and we tend to think more on individual terms, and so some of the practices and things that are going to be covered in this chapter seem a bit odd, because we think, me and Jesus, that's it, kind of thing, whereas Nehemiah is concerned about the people of God and the worship of the people of God. Is that going to continue? Not individually. But corporately, is there going to be a people of God who worships their God? And that's what we'll see him engaged in as we move through this chapter. 
All six of the areas of reform that we'll cover in this chapter stress the need for vigilance, for persistence, for perseverance, as well as follow-up on decisions and actions. This is not well-meaning, you know, blue-eyed looking at things and saying, oh, it'll all be good. No, it's hard confronting and then insisting that something be done as we move through this chapter. We'll also see how Nehemiah does not simply attempt to sweep things under the rug. You go, well, you know, that's not that bad, whatever. Just let it slide. They'll take care of it. He doesn't do that. He doesn't ignore things. He doesn't hope that these things will go away and right themselves. He doesn't try to be nice. He was motivated here by a desire to see Yahweh worshipped as he should be. And he confronts the issues head on. Each of these examples of ongoing reform show us unique ways, not merely sin in general, but of specific ways where the people have backed away from being faithful to their covenant promises. And so underlying all that's said here is this call back to be faithful to the covenant, to the promises, and to the God of the covenant, and serving and worshiping him. So these examples of reform show us specific ways that the people are called back to that covenant faithfulness. They show us that hearts, the hearts of the people are still in need of change. They're not there yet. The Messiah has to come. The Spirit has to come to enable God's people to keep covenant as Nehemiah wanted it. So as we look at this chapter, it breaks down fairly straightforwardly. The first three verses are a foundation for reform and in a certain sense the first kind of reform uh, which has to do with intermarriage. Secondly, then there's the greed or personal privilege and the reform needed to right that. Thirdly, there's a care for God's house. Fourthly, there's a concern for the Sabbath. Fifthly, there's families and intermarriage again. And so there's this problem that persists, and there's certain implications that Nehemiah deals with. And then lastly, the establishment of the priesthood. And these things are like, what? for us, it's like, what, why bother? What's the big deal? Okay, But you have to put yourself back in an Old Testament context. Your forefathers have sinned against God till they were blue in the face. God's finally said, okay, enough. Out of the land. Go. Exile. Now he's restored them back to the land. He's allowed them to rebuild the temple. Worship is starting up again. The city of Jerusalem is being populated. The question is now, is this going to keep on? Or is it going to fall flat yet again? And so as we look at these things, you have to understand that that's Nehemiah's intention. So first of all, in the first part of verse 1, we have the reading of the law. And on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the peoples. When that day was, we're not sure. Some would say that it was the day, kind of an anniversary of chapter 8 when they read from the law at that point. Don't know. It could have been any other day. 
There's no indication of who was reading this. But it evidently was a public reading. In other words, this is not just a few priests off in the side room in the temple going, you know, look at this interesting passage here in the law of God. <laughs> Let's talk about that. There was the people of God assembled, hearing God's word. And it's the book of Moses. It's the first part of the Hebrew canon. The first five books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy. Where this section is in the law will become evident as we look at what they're reading. But here what we see is from the start in this follow-up reform of Nehemiah, Scripture is foundational. It's what lays the basis for all that's going to come. This isn't Nehemiah going, you know, I really don't like that what you're doing over here. I'd really like the worship to look this way. I'd like you to, you priests to do this kind of thing, sing this song, not that one. I don't like that one. That's not the point. The point is, here's what God's Word says. Now, what do we do about it? <laughs> okay? And Nehemiah doesn't just let it ride. You go, well, that's kind of an interesting thing that what God word, God's Word says, you know, Let's not be too overzealous about these things. No, he wants to see it done. The people have made promises. And so Scripture has this central place, and everything else is going to flow out of this foundation that's provided in Scripture. It says the light of God's Word illuminates the specifics of the situation, exposing areas where the people had drifted badly away from the teaching of Scripture that Nehemiah engages in bringing various areas back to where they should be so that God is worshipped and glorified. So area number one of reform is a reform concerning intermarriage. That's in verses 1, this last part of it, to verse 3. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Baalam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. If you want to read that, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 to 5. So they were reading that portion of the law, Deuteronomy 23. They would know the whole context, okay? You're going to have to go back and spend the rest of today looking at that context to see what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy. This is where Balaam was hired by Balak to curse the people of God. And the donkey even talks. Balaam couldn't do it. Why? Because there's this promise made to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, whoever curses you, I'll curse. Whoever blesses you, I'll bless. The Moabites and the Ammonites wanted to curse God's people, but they couldn't. And so because they had tried to do that, they're excluded from the assembly, the gathered people of God for worship. This wasn't getting even. Those wicked people, they didn't let us through their land. They didn't give us anything to eat. So now we're going to get them. No, this is a covenant promise that God had made. And so now, as the 
have some implications for the way they live in Nehemiah's time. The reason given for the exclusion is that they had cursed Israel. They hadn't provided them with things. The Ammonites and Moabites had attempted to curse God's people. It shows that they were these people in, in Nehemiah's time were studying God's word and were interested in applying it to their situation. Now you have to keep this in mind, okay? They're just kind of seems like randomly reading in the law. They come to this passage, but this is going to come back a couple times in the rest of the chapter that no Ammonite or Moabite should be part of the worshiping community of the people of God, okay? So then in verse 3, you see the, the response of the people. Well, you know, that's kind of hard, right? I mean, they're really nice people. They haven't done anything all that bad. Is that what they say? <laughs> We're told in verse 3 that they respond immediately. They obey what the Word of God says. They do it. They put it into practice. So they respond with obedience. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Is that how we respond? You hear God's word and go, yeah, I want to do this. Or, well, maybe on Tuesday. But by Tuesday, well, i got too much to do this week, and it'll be maybe next week. And then, next thing you know, it never happens. It should be like the Israelites here. They see their ready compliance to obey the word of God, to put it into practice. And this was not an easy thing. This isn't showing up for evening worship on Sunday. This is, you're married to somebody, and now that's got to stop. That's hard. Are we ready to put God's word into practice when it's hard? Not just when it's convenient and makes my life better, but what God has required. So as soon as the people hear the word of God, they act in obedience, separating those foreigners from their midst. So we see immediate action based on the clear teaching of the word of God. So things are looking pretty good at this point. We move on to reform number two in verses four to nine. It's a problem concerning greed or personal privilege, but it has to do with an implication of this foreign marriage, this intermarrying thing. In verses four to five we read, now before this Eliashif, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offerings and the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain and wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So what's the problem here? So this guy, Tobiah, gets some rooms. Big deal. What's the point? Okay. The problem basically is that Eliashib, the high priest, has made living accommodations for Tobiah, an Ammonite, in the temple. 
Okay, this is not, you know, a nice little villa out on the edge of town where he has a nice view. This is in the temple itself. This is where that which should go to the Levites should have been stored in the temple area so that they could access it as Levites. That's thrown out. Room is made for Tobiah. So who are the players here? First of all, Eliashiv. His name means my God returns or causes to return. What a good name for a high priest after you've come back from exile. You know, it's just a reminder of that. Should have acted like it. <laughs> he was the high priest. He's related, evidently through marriage, to Tobiah. His grandson was married to Sanballat's daughter, as we'll see. So he's a person of extensive influence and one willing to disregard the law of God for his buddy. It's like, well, we don't worry about that. I know you. It's good. We'll just let you put yourself down here in the temple. Also, there were regulations and responsibilities which the high priest was to follow about maintaining the holiness of the temple area. If the high priest sinned, we're told in Leviticus 4.3, his sin was extended to the whole people. This wasn't just a personal thing. As a high priest, you're representing God's people. You sin, that sin and the guilt of it goes to all of God's people. Here's the guy who should be leading the way in worship, providing atonement. And he's saying, forget God's law. An Ammonite, no problem. Come into the temple. Live here. I'll make room for you. So you understand what's going on and the gravity of the situation. And he's providing for Tobiah. His name means Yahweh is good. Again, a good name. Tobiah was the son-in-law of Sechaniah. So he had married into the leading families of Israel, of those who had returned. He was also evidently related to Eliashiv somehow. But the point that the text makes is that he's an Ammonite. We've just seen from Deuteronomy 23, which the people are reading, no Ammonite should be in the assembly. And here he's camped right there, boom, in the midst of the whole thing. And he's a servant. Furthermore, he opposed Nehemiah at the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, back in chapter 2, verse 10. He was in league with Sanballat and vehemently opposed all that Nehemiah was doing. So why was this a bad thing? The room which Tobiah occupied was to have been the place where the Levites' provision was stored. It was in the temple precinct, which has to be holy. And here's a Gentile, an Ammonite who should not have any place in that, right there. And the high priest who should have taught to the people of the, the law and set them a good example is here, contrary to the law, providing Tobiah a place of prominence, a home in the temple. He's an Ammonite. In order to make room for Tobiah, the contributions for the priests and the Levites had to be thrown out. So then we look at verse 6 and we see Nehemiah's response. 
He said, well, would it be okay if you just, you know, moved in a year or two? Now, Nehemiah goes right at it. He says, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. So he had been away, gone back to the court, the Persian court, and now he's come back. Verse 7 tells us that he's discovered it somehow, we're not sure how, that Tobias got this suite of rooms in the temple. In verse 8, and I was very angry. And I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. He was angry, rightly so, not because of personal offense, but this was God's house. How could this be? And he's upset. So Nehemiah throws out all of Tobiah's household furniture. Nehemiah's anger was joined with action, however, to remedy the situation. He's not just distraught. So this, is, this, is not, this is not right. He does something about it. He throws out the furniture first, but then Nehemiah extends efforts for effecting real and lasting reform. I can't help but think as I see Nehemiah acting here that there's going to be one who comes, goes into God's house, and cleanses it of the money changers and says, this house should be a house of prayer. And so that's what we see Nehemiah doing, restoring God's house to what it should be. Then we see his follow-up response in verse 9. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Here we see a twofold action of Nehemiah. He throws out the bad, and he restores the good. He follows through with his initial action. He not only throws out Tobiah's belongings, but he has the rooms cleansed, and then the proper items returned back to where they should be so that worship could continue. It's not just, no, Tobiah, you should stop that. No. Nehemiah takes care of it. He gets Tobiah out of there and puts the things back that should be. In our own lives, we need to follow this procedure that Nehemiah follows here if we're to overcome sin and progress in godliness. Just eliminating a sinful practice or simply adding a God-honoring practice is not enough. We need to do both. We need to get rid of the bad and put in the good. can't just get rid of bad habits without building good ones. And so we see Nehemiah here following up, making sure that things are done proper. With this effort, Nehemiah is eliminating an example of personal greed or privilege and returning the priority to its proper place, namely worship of God. Now we come to reform number three in verses 10 to 14. Problem of concern that concerns the care of God's house. First of all, the problem in verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. What's the problem here? The contributions for the Levites had stopped so they had returned home to their residences so they could make a living and eat. What's happening? Worship's stopped. <laughs> and for background, you have to understand what's going on here. 
the law of God clearly teaches well before this time in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 that you should not neglect the contributions to the Levites. Why? Because that's worship. That's your life. But that had stopped. But additionally, the people had made a covenant promise back in chapter 10 verse 39 that we would not neglect the house of God. And it's also evidence of a reneging on that promise and the promise and the work that had begun in Nehemiah 12 where they had begun to give to the Levites, but now that's stopped. The result is that the Levites had been wronged and that the portion due to them had not been given, had not been provided. So in order to survive, they'd returned to their towns, and the worship of the people of God is neglected. This isn't about Nehemiah just saying, you know, this is my personal agenda. It's about the worship of God. The Levites had been starved out, and the house of God was now being neglected, which the people had promised not to do. So then we see Nehemiah's response to this need. In verse 11, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. So he confronts them. And the word that's used there is a word not just being nasty, but it's a covenant lawsuit. It's saying, wait a minute, you've promised covenantally to do this, and you're not doing it. There's consequences for that action. Nehemiah here doesn't confront the Levites who had returned to their towns, or even the people who had stopped giving the contributions to the Levites. Rather, he confronts the officials responsible for the proper functioning of the house of God. They should have been reminding the people of their responsibility and encouraging them to give, but that had stopped. Verse 11 makes explicit mention of the neglect of the house of God. The word forsaken that's used there refers back to Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39, where the people had made a covenant promise to not forsake the house of God. But here, that's exactly what they've been doing. Once again, we see that Nehemiah was not merely content with chiding the officials. He immediately gathers the Levites back and then appoints leaders. He sets the Levites to their tasks And then he follows up and takes administrative steps to ensure that the reform is carried out. There's good administration that's necessary if the reform is going to go forward. Then in chapter 12, or verse 12, we see the response of the people here. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. So again, when the people are challenged, they respond in faith and obedience. It gives us this picture that they're willing to do what God's Word says if the leaders would lead them in that way. Nehemiah's zeal provokes the zeal of God's people. When the people see that the Levites are back in Jerusalem kind of standing around, they're going, oh, they got to eat, so we got to bring this stuff in that they can do that. And so the, the ball gets rolling once again, and worship is restored. There's restoration or return to a previous pattern. 
Then we see Nehemiah follow up yet again in verse 13. And I appointed treasurers over the storehouses. And he names them. What's he doing here? He's not saying to the people, you know, well, be good. (laughs) You know, make your contributions. That's happened before. And it fell away. So Nehemiah sets up people who are going to take responsibility for this. There's an accountability going on here. He follows up to make sure that it's going to go forward. It's not going to just dribble out again and stop. So with the appointment of these men, we see Nehemiah establishing a layer of accountability. It's not enough to merely remind the people of their responsibility to bring the contributions in for the Levites. He appoints men who would see to it that it was done. And not just one, but a plurality so that they can hold each other accountable. And these are reliable men. The word that he uses there is ones who are trustworthy. They've shown themselves to be covenant keepers. And those are the ones that he puts over this to follow up, to make sure that it's carried out. Verse 14 is a kind of a refrain. And we'll see this again and again as we move through. It's Nehemiah's prayer. He says, remember me, O my God concerning this, and do not wipe out my good, idea, my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Nehemiah is not saying, remember me because I'm such a good guy and I've done these wonderful things. The word remember is a covenant term. He's saying to God, keep covenant. You've promised blessings to those who keep your covenant, Lord. My whole heart's desire is to see your house restored, worship restored. So remember me. It's not a prayer of, oh, I want special blessing here. It's a matter of saying, I've been faithful. Now remember me for that. So we move on to the fourth reform of Nehemiah concerning the Sabbath in verses 15 to 22. In those days I saw Judah, in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. So what's the problem here? Particularly in our day and age, so secular, Sabbath, what's that? Could we even talk about that in our world? But the point here is that the people are violating the Sabbath, the fourth commandment of God's law to set aside a day devoted to worship him in thanksgiving for what he's done. It goes back to the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. It concerns here not God's house, but God's day. A day set aside to worship the Lord. It goes back to creation order. It's to be a day of delight for God's people. This is not Nehemiah going, I want to make it miserable for them, so we're going to be really tight on the Sabbath. The point is, this is the day that we can worship our God. We can intentionally come together for that purpose alone. And what are they doing? They're going, it's just like any other day. i got business to do. i got to make money. i got to make a living. Let's just get on with things. And Nehemiah is saying, no, this is the core of what we are, the Sabbath, a day set aside to rest from our work so that we can worship God in anticipation of the restoration that he's bringing. 
by his grace. And that the people in Nehemiah's day had already sworn to keep the Sabbath. In Nehemiah 10.31, they had promised not to produce anything that was offered for sale on the Sabbath. So this wasn't something way back in the law, way back there. These people themselves had promised to keep the Sabbath. They're maybe thinking it's a harvest exemption here because they're treading wine, so that's at harvest. They're bringing in heaps of grain that's at harvest. Maybe they're saying, well, God's got to understand it's harvest time. We've got to do this, otherwise the stuff will spoil. <laughs> no. Because here again, back in Exodus 34, there's an emphasis even in harvest of keeping Sabbath. Nehemiah gives several violations of the Sabbath, treading wine, bringing in heaps of grain, bearing loads of wine, grapes, figs, and all food products that are going to spoil if you don't deal with them. Interestingly, he doesn't say that the people had ceased performing temple rituals on the Sabbath. It's the other things that they're doing. So they're going to church, if you will, but then conducting business as well. The point of these violations was not an explicit disregard was not only an explicit disregard for the law of God, but even more a disrespect of or an indifference toward the Lord himself. They didn't care about God and his day. They had other things to do, more important things to do. Then there's complications in verse 16. The Tyranians, people from Tyre, were there in Jerusalem, setting up shop, selling things to the people. They lived in the city and brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem. So verse 17, we see Nehemiah's response to this challenge. Then I confronted them, the nobles of Judah, and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? He calls it evil. This isn't just, you know, it would be nice if you didn't do that. This is evil. It's a violation of God's law, and God's law is a revelation of who he is. In him, in him alone, are we to find our rest. And they're violating the Sabbath. And he gives reasoning in verse 18. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. These are people who had known Jerusalem was destroyed because of the covenant breaking of their fathers. And they're saying, no big deal. We'll do it again. (laughs) Knowing full well what's coming. So we see Nehemiah's follow-up yet again in verse 19. He doesn't just say, you know, this should stop and hope that it happens. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought into the city or on, in on the Sabbath day. As I read this, I can't help but think back to one time I was in Israel And it was a Saturday evening, okay? So the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, was about over. 
Well, in the city of Jerusalem, the new part, there's all kinds of cafes and what have you, and the buses start running toward the end, late afternoon, to they're at the stations where they can start then running, and traffic is there, and all the people are starting to gather so that when the shops open, when Sabbath is over, which is whenever the, the chief rabbi says in the, the afternoon on Saturday, um, so all the people are there on the streets walking up and down, and there's this Hasidic Jew, you know, with a big beard, the funny hat, looks like, you know, jail clothes on, and he's screaming at the top of the lungs, it's the Sabbath, you're profaning the Sabbath. I'm thinking, whew, couldn't do that in modern day wherever. In Jerusalem, yeah. But he had a zeal for God's day. And these people could care less. Most Jews were secular, they could care. But what about us? This is God's day. Do we have a zeal for that? Not for the day itself, but for the God that has called us to worship Him. So Nehemiah follows up. He closes the gates and the doors. And there's different words that are used there, so I get the impression that he not only closed the gates of the city so you couldn't go in and out, but the doors of the shops. Everybody wanted to sell stuff. He closed it down. Okay? He's not just saying, you know, this, is, this should stop. He's making sure it doesn't happen. He stations his own servants there to make sure that it's happening. Then we see some kind of evasion tactics in verse 20. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. <laughs> the picture here is they're like, okay, we can't go into the city and do all this stuff, but we're going to be just outside. So in case you might need something on the Sabbath day, we're just a wee little walk, and you can get, get to us quickly, you know, easily accessible. Didn't have online back then, so it's a whole different way. But evidently the message gets through because they just try it a couple times and then they realize this isn't going to happen. Nehemiah is not letting up. The people of God are going to honor God's day. And then we see in verses 21 and 22, Nehemiah's subsequent twofold follow-up. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do it again, I'll lay hands on you. From that time on, they didn't come to the Sabbath. So he says, I'm going I'm to take you out of here. I'll put you in jail. I'll remove you if you do this. And so he sees to it that things are done. And then there's positive steps in verse 22. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day. Levites weren't just guys who did the worship. They guarded the gates. Why? Because that was access into worship. And so they, he puts them responsible. Again, it's accountability. It's follow-through. He doesn't just say, please honor the Sabbath day. Please. He makes sure that it happens and does this in two different ways. He throws out the bad, and he brings in the good. And then in verse 22... The latter part of that, we have another prayer of Nehemiah. Once again, he asks God to remember what he's done in helping to keep the Sabbath. He asks God to spare him from judgment. This is not, look at me, what I've done. Isn't this wonderful? It's Nehemiah saying, I deserve wrath, but please spare me in your grace. 
We move on to verse, verses 23 to 27, the fifth reform concerning families. It's again a problem of intermarriage. So the problem in verse 23, in those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. What's the problem? It's the problem of intermarriage. And this time it has consequences with regard to children of those families. What's said here is that Jews, literally Judites, those who live in the province of Judah, have married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And we've already seen the explicit prohibition against Ammonites and Moabites amongst the people of God. Here, Ashdod is added. It's a former Philistine city on the coast, the west coast, of west of Jerusalem, whereas Ammon and Moab were both countries to the east of Judah. All three of these people groups are enemies of the people of God. But the people of God are saying, oh, it's not a big deal. We're just married to them. It's okay. We're still worshiping God. It's no big deal. But verse 24 gives us the implications of this. The text says, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Intermarriage has consequences. The children of these mixed marriages are not able to speak the language of Judah, but only their mother tongue, the language of their mother's people. However, it's not merely the use of another language, since most of the Jews probably spoke Aramaic and Hebrew, but it's rather the implications of speaking another language, the almost unconscious cultural issues that are associated with foreign languages, the introduction of thought patterns, of ways of expression, values, priorities, ways of looking at things that are associated with another language. Children pick up values as well as ability to speak the language as they learn from their mother or father. It's all part of the educational process of raising children. They learn to speak. Just this week I was on a train and there was a Spanish-speaking Spanish family, and the little kids are just chattering away. I thought, oh, I'd like to be able to speak Spanish that well, that easily. Nobody taught them how to speak that. They just learn it. But think about how much else children learn. Okay, and we'll talk about the implications of this later. But it's not just that there's husband and wives. There's children, and the children are beginning to drift away. What's happening here? And Nehemiah is concerned. So verse 25, he confronts them and curses them and beats some of them and pulled out their hair. Hmm. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Nehemiah is not making this up. He's again going back to the Word of God and saying, Let's put this into practice here. You shouldn't be doing this. So he makes him take an oath. In verse 26, we see his reasoning. First of all, there's a historical president, even Solomon. Started off pretty good. Asks God for wisdom. God gives it to him. Then he marries all kinds of women. And they led him into sin. And he's going, is that what we want here? These people knew 
They'd heard about Jerusalem being destroyed. They'd been in exile. They're back. Do they want to go there again? Then he also talks about the consequences in verse 27. So we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women. You see, this is not about the marriage per se. It's an act against God that he's concerned with. So the practice of intermarriage is an intentional act of covenant unfaithfulness directed against God and is sure to warrant his judgment. The point Nehemiah is making is that this practice must stop. And so he sees to it. Then the last reform concerns the priesthood. The problems in the first part of verse 28, and one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashuv, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horite. What's the problem here? Briefly put, the family of the high priest had been compromised through marriage, thus making all of the worship of God's people invalid. Remember, Leviticus says the high priest sins, that sin extends to all the people. Leviticus also says the high priest should only marry an Israelite woman. To do so is fine. If you marry a foreigner, you're sinned as a high priest. So that makes all the worship of God's people. This isn't just the high priest, you know, it's okay for him. No, this affects all of God's people. And so Nehemiah has to address it. So we see Nehemiah's response in the latter part of 28. Therefore, I chased him from me. Quite simply, he just caused him to flee. (laughs) I wouldn't want to come across Nehemiah (laughs) in an alley. (laughs) Nehemiah's response is to cause him to flee, effectively removing the influence of Sanballat from through his daughter on the high priestly family. Then in verse 29, we see again a prayer, and remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. See, for Nehemiah, that's how we get salvation. If that's gone, there's no hope. That's why his concern here. It's not just trying to make life miserable for the high priests. So you've got to pick an Israelite woman. No. Salvation of God's people depended on these things. Verse 30 and 31 is an epilogue. First of all, Nehemiah summarizes what he's done, and then he gives a final prayer. And it's basically a repeat of what we've already seen. But now what about us? We're not Jews living in Nehemiah's time. We don't have high priests, thanks be to God. We don't have blood sacrifices and all the rest. So how does this passage apply to us? First of all, back to the beginning of this chapter, the foundation. Is Scripture really the foundation for your walk as a believer? So much of what we do is influenced by external sources, culture around us, bits and pieces here and there. But we need to go back to Scripture, the Word of God and let it penetrate our lives, expose our sin, and then do what it says willingly. And be glad for that, because it's God changing us, making us more like his son. Also, follow through. We saw time and time again, Nehemiah doesn't just go, you know, this is not a good thing. 
and leave it. He takes steps. What about in our lives, individually and as a congregation? Are we following through with things? Is there follow-up? Do we follow up with one another to make sure that we're growing in grace, becoming more like our faithful high priest, Jesus Christ? It's not just a matter of hearing a sermon. You go out, forgotten, done, rest of the week, good. It's a matter of saying, how can we help one another? What concrete things can we do to make sure that we're doing what God says? Not in some legalistic fashion, but so that we can together worship him more. The whole intermarriage thing. Thanks be to God, we don't have to be concerned about that. You're allowing one of the ones from the rebellious colonies to preach to you this evening. <laughs> we have foreigners from all kinds of countries here tonight. Thanks be to God. There's been Pentecost. <laughs> now the nations are starting to come. So it's not about racial purity here that these intermarriage passages deal with. But what about how affected we are by marrying our culture around us? Our children, are they learning the language of Canaan or the language of Scripture? So much comes into our lives through media, colleagues, friends, neighbors, that's radically different than the Word of God. And so in a sense, that's intermarriage. We need to be careful about that, lest that pollute our devotion to God and draw us away from Him. And the Sabbath is it a delight for us, not just because we have tea and coffee and biscuits on Sunday mornings, but so that we can be with God's people in God's house, worshiping our God, thanking Him, singing praises to Him. And our families, as our society becomes more and more secular, we need to be aware and not just go, oh, it's bad out there. What are we doing to teach our children to think biblically, to live in accordance with Scripture, teaching them the language of God's Word, the priorities, the values? That's what these things are about. Then lastly, the high priest. We don't have to worry that our high priest is going to intermarry with some foreigner. <laughs> He's at God's right hand right now. So our atonement is sure. It's not like Nehemiah had to worry about the high priest. We don't have that worry because we have a faithful high priest and we need to worship him body and soul, life and in death, with our whole being every day of the week. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this book of Nehemiah. We thank you that you are a God of covenant faithfulness. You restore, you pour out grace upon grace upon grace on your people. Dear Lord, we pray that you would pour out your grace on us, transform us, remake us, hold us fast in your hand that we might worship you in all of life and bring glory to your name. And we ask it in the name of our King and faithful High Priest, Jesus. Amen.
continue worship by singing Nothing But the Blood, even though we didn't talk about that <laughs> so much tonight. We did last week. So we'll stand and sing Nothing But the Blood and then remain standing for the benediction. <laughs> 